Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And today I'm talking to Laura Sabanosh. Not a fantastic surname. I really like it. And um, it's as phonetic as it sounds. So when you're looking for Laura's details later on, it's be easy to spell. So, well, first of all, hello, Laura. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. And I can tell by the accent you're over the pond. So where are you in the world today? I Well, I'd love to say sunny Florida, but uh, we're a little chilly here down in the uh, Florida panhandle. I'm in uh, Pensacola, Florida. Oh, wow. A lovely part of the world. So when you think it's cold, it's only about 113 degrees Fahrenheit, is it? You know, there. <laughs> in, in our area, I'd say about 50 degrees, but oh, that is chilly for me. That's chilly for you. Yes. I mean, goodness, you have to find a, you have to find a, um, a T-shirt with sleeves. Is that how it works? That's right. Well, my daughters laugh. I'm wearing a sweatshirt and Ugg boots. So they, uh, yes, they'd be in T-shirt and shorts and I'm bundled up in jackets and sweatshirts. <laughs> <laughs> my heart bleeds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Well, thank you for spending time with us today. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Uh, currently, I'm retired. Um, but uh, so my my change uh, in pace in life has slowed down a little bit. Uh, but what I currently am doing is changing over into more advocacy roles. Uh, up to date, I had, um, you know, I was school focused, I had uh, been teaching, working for the uh, military and government roles. I had uh, worked for university systems. I'd spent most of my life in helping fields. Uh, so whether that had been through education aspects, volunteering, uh, working for individuals in counseling roles, and spending that pretty much through most of my life, even when I was in, um, in the high school settings, doing uh, much uh, aspects with working with individuals. Uh, now, since I'm retired, it's kind of changed a little bit, a little bit of a slower pace, but uh, getting out and uh, helping individuals in a different nature. And in which areas are helping them? Because I can see it's about domestic abuse and what are the sorts of things? Sure. Now it's more of a, a, a personal nature, uh, and not necessarily an, an expected uh, role, but um more on my life experiences uh, and uh, tackling things that um, where my life had become more open and um, put out there for people to see and 
um, and not necessarily where I would have liked it to go, um, but learning from that over the last few years and seeing where there have been gaps um, with domestic violence and help and really looking inward. Um, between my daughters and I, we saw a great need for um, people who were not getting the assistance they needed, uh, feeling that they were alone. I know for myself, it, it is a very lonely place to be and uh, not understanding where you could go, what the help you needed. And uh, in our area, um, in government and military settings, there are a lot of individuals who I saw come out of the woodworks afterwards uh, who felt the same identification, who still feel the same way. Uh, and even though there are um, pockets that, um, you know, get headlines for change and um, future changes, uh, there are still not things um, being done. Um, there are laws on the books. There are um, there are measures out there for domestic violence, but they're not being applied. They weren't applied during the time that um, throughout the years that I was dealing with it. And so it's, it's finding the voice. It's finding the ability to be heard. Uh, it's understanding for people that may not, might not deal with or not think that they know people um, who are dealing with domestic violence, changing perceptions, um, learning how to listen better, um, be better family and friends um, who are near um, domestic violence families and reaching out to change culture and mindsets. Yeah. And so it applies beyond the, you know, government and military settings as well, because even though we serve a capacity, those that support us um, might not be in those settings. And so we, as we started moving forward and where it led me to do the book, and um, like I said, I'm retired now. So it, it changes how um, I work and, and help people and uh, might talk to people offline. Okay. So, so we better unpack a bit of this because you're talking as if we know the story. So you better, you sure. better bring us up to date on what is quite a tumultuous story. And then that will bring the context into shape. So, so tell me a little bit about the background and what, what happened to you. Sure. Uh, so I can, uh, this, the, what prompted me to write the book is, um, and it kind of goes um, to, the, to the heart of it was uh, in 2015, I was um, kind of pushed out into the limelight. It was a, uh, it became an international headline story uh, in January of 2015. My husband um, and I were uh, at the Naval Station in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which is, um, for those that may not or may know, uh, is a, an American uh, a Naval Station uh, and joint base uh, that's in the Caribbean. And uh, we were there uh, in a civilian capacity. Uh, eventually, I had a position there as well, um, but we were there on my husband's orders. And we'd been there at that point for four years uh, in our, uh, as a family. What most people see as the Naval Station or they call it Gitmo, um, what makes headlines is not what we were there for. We didn't have any affiliation with what generally makes the headlines all around the world. Uh, we were there in 
more uh, helping areas. My husband was uh, worked for the uh, uh, Navy Exchange, which is like a grocery store um, or a uh, convenience store. They sell clothes and food. And I worked for the Family Service Center, which did um, mental health services. And um, we were at a command function, um, which created a, um, in, we had an altercation, everybody was having a good time. And uh, what created the media headlines is because two days later, my husband uh, was found uh, dead. Uh, he had drowned in the um, bay there out of uh, Cuba. What fell from that was that the, the media had portrayed my husband um, in such a facet um, at, which followed us for years, which still does. Um, and there was no, there was only one side that was ever told. Um, they catapulted him into this narrative of, um, and, and at times he was, you know, a war hero. He was uh, a wonderful husband, a wonderful father. Um, you know, he was, he was so many things in this narrative. And, um, and that was all that was discussed over and over again. Uh, there were court proceedings. Um, and, you know, there were social media reports and the silence that we had to have, we were told it was better if we didn't say anything. So at that point, after years of being told from all kinds of, you know, agencies and factions and people that we should be quiet, and I had already spent 20 years of being quiet, caged came out because that's how I felt. I had already lived in a cage and then I had spent so many years afterwards and I, all I get being told was it was better if you stay quiet. It's better if you stay quiet. And I didn't want to be quiet anymore. Well, I'm not quite clear what you've been quiet about. Ex everything that I had lived, uh, the night that we, after he had died, before I even found out that my husband had passed, um, I was part of trying to help find where my husband was. A domestic violence report had been filed um, on my husband um, because what had never been put out in the media reports is that my husband had assaulted me three times that evening. Wow. He had verbally and physically assaulted me. Um, I had marks on me from his assaultant. Um, he had, um, uh, and the agent who was doing the, um, what they had told me that they were doing was doing a search and rescue. They had partnered up because of our location um, that the first thing out of her mouth was, well, why would you stay with him? And from, you know, even my training working with mental health, you know, victims don't want to hear that they're being blamed in these situations. So now I'm being questioned about why would I want to stay with somebody? So I'm giving the details and I'm explaining, and now I'm feeling like I'm the bad person because I'm, I stayed with somebody um, for 20 years, almost 20 years, I stayed with him. So we went through the line of questioning. I think I'm helping my husband. And, you know, there were documents and all they wanted to talk about was, you know, he was a good person. The people that were questioning me 
were the same people that would go out on fishing boats or they would be down at the docks with my husband. These were the same people we would see at the grocery stores. So it wasn't exactly as cut and dry as these were your local law enforcements that are out in the public. Yeah. And, you know, so eventually I realized that nobody was listening. Nobody wanted to hear. Um, there were no reports. And then as I was going back up to the Northeast to deal with a burial, and we had already had a large church service um, for my husband, as a, a funeral. And so now going to deal with the burial and the media report started leaking and a salacious side came out. And what people didn't realize is at that point, although I was sad about my husband missing, my marriage actually was already over. Yeah. We had, I had called for the ending. It's, and, it's, it's, but that was a private issue. But it is one of these questions, isn't it, in death domestic? I mean, I understand this from the work we do in trauma, um, but it's interesting to explain it to people. Why do domestic abuse victims often stay with their abusers? Have it is. A, have you a view on it? I do. And, you know, um, my daughters and I, because we talk very frank about it, and I, you know, I've, I've said, you know, I don't, disagree with the question being asked in circles where people are educating and understanding. I disagree with it from a law enforcement standpoint when they're trying to assist somebody yeah. because yeah. it's damaging when you're trying to help somebody. Sure. When you're trying to educate, it's a way for people to understand. And so in these settings, when you're trying to understand why people do stay, in, in some respects, you're lost in a, in a vortex. And understanding and even putting out this information and, and advocating over the years, I, when I've looked back at pictures, when I have looked back, you know, my husband were, and I were together for 20 years. I married him as an active, he was an active duty member. I became a young military wife with him. I was 19 years old when I met him. I was a college student. I had great plans. I came from a really strong family unit um, with no background in violence. Um, my parents didn't even believe in spanking. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so to get into a relationship, he was something so different from what I, and the stronger my ties became with him, I lost myself in him. The more I lost myself in him, the more I became, and in the beginning, it, they're not abusive. No, they're, they're the knight in shining armor. And before we got married, there were, uh, now I recognize the red flags. I can look back. My mom what? calls it Monday morning quarterback. <laughs> yeah. So what were the red flags? Cause that's useful for people to know, isn't it? Sure. So for, for me, um, you know, in, we had a very short um, dating period and it was long distance. And so we, from the time we met to the time we got married um, was a year, was under a year actually. And we actually weren't, um, I, we didn't live in the same area. So he was um, stationed in, um, in Camp Lejeune, which is for us, it was uh, down South and I was in the Northeast in, in college. Uh, and I, he would come and visit me um, almost every weekend. 
the different for for me i thought oh that's so romantic however he was violating his military protocol by doing that so he was breaking his own laws every time he he would leave to come see me so he doesn't he didn't follow directions finding out later that um he he was already lying to me before we even got married. Um, he had drug and alcohol issues. Uh, he was driving on suspended licenses. So he was already lying and hiding. Um, and uh, at one point when we were dating, I there was a, an instance where we were, um, I had come to visit him and um, people that he was with um, where it was a drug related incident. And I had very clearly, I was, I did, I was not a, into drugs at the scene. Um, but I, I, you know, I, if that's their thing, that's fine. Um, we could be friends. And I was very clear about it. That should have given me the indication if he was okay with it. And if that was things he did walk away. Yeah. Um, and when he promised he would never do it again, um, when he had an altercation with his family and walked out and didn't come back for hours and came back and wouldn't even discuss it. And that's abnormal for how my family would deal with things. And I was frightened by it, but he wasn't angry with me. So I said, well, that wasn't about me. So I should leave it alone. So these were things that after we got married, they did become my problems. Yeah. Uh, these were how he handled situations and he did bring them into our marriage. Yeah. Do, you, he, do you think that it being in a military marriage though, somehow almost legitimizes that power imbalance in a relationship? Because in a, sometimes. In, yeah, because it's almost that thing about, well, you're seeing the system that, you know, supports, supports the perception of the military that it's a, uh, it's a specific thing that cares for his people and that you're actually in a sense rocking the boat by accusing one of the members of the military, aren't you? Is that, do you think that's part of the systemic problem with sitting behind this? There are, you know, there are wonderful members of, of the military. I think this hurts when, when senior leadership doesn't address domestic violence and sexual assault in its entirety. It's, uh, and, and takes a strong hold of it uh, and the drug abuse and things like that, that also can be coping mechanisms, um, then it's, it does, it becomes a, it, it becomes a foundational problem. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a saying, it's very cliche, but, um, you know, when it, when it said so much, it's, it's not a joke anymore. You know, if the military wanted you to have a wife, they would issue you one. Yeah. And it was said, it's been said longer than I've been alive. And it's still joked about today. And they, you know, it's a, it's, but it's not a joke. And it hurts. It's a foundational issue. And the services are only as good as these foundations. Families are the core of these foundations. And you know, there are a lot of senior leadership that believe that what happens in the house, again, it's a cliche, what happens in the house stays in the house. Mm-hmm. I've watched some senior leadership who will believe the service member is letting off stress. 
Throwing a TV at a spouse is not letting off stress. Absolutely. Grabbing another service, uh, grabbing your spouse and shaking them, you know, um, punching something and joking. Well, I could have punched her, uh, throwing a drink, which I've had happen to me, uh, you know, in public. Well, you know, that is not funny. And this, these are things we need to watch out in other people's relationships as well as they, because often they're the indicators that something's not right. But the person who is in that relationship isn't necessarily trapped. They're actually a part of it, aren't they? They're, they're being controlled. It track, trapped is a, is, a, is a difficult word, isn't it? Because, because it has implications, doesn't it? Whereas it's, it's, more, in, it's all more insidious than being trapped. Because trapped almost implies like a physical barrier, whereas there's no physical barrier. It's actually a, a web of deceit and... Uh, it does. Like. And, and, you know, after a while, you, you know, I had conversations with people, I, you know, so that question of, you know, why doesn't she or he leave yeah. um, after a while? Why do they stay? Um, because we believe after a while, it doesn't matter how educated we are, doesn't matter how much money we have. And it's because it's not about that. Uh, it's being conditioned in a way, isn't it? You, you're conditioned. Yeah, it's almost like being a hostage. And it's so it's the trapping is is more insidious, insidious than the physical trapping. I always find believe, the word trapping very odd because actually it, there's no perception of being trapped because you've been your your reality is warped, so you don't see yourself as being trapped in a way. Do you? It is, and and that's where you know the 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 idea of caged because after a while you you believe the things that are said. Yeah, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. Because after a while, you believe the things that are being said, that you did something, you're the cause of it. Um, you apologize for the reason that they're angry. Um, you can't, you do believe there isn't anyone else out there. Um, he used to tell me I was the smartest, stupidest person he ever met. And um, you, you, it's... I had told somebody you die a little bit every time these things happen. And after a while, there is nothing else left inside. Yeah. So you go in through the motions to stop and hopefully slow down what continues to happen. Yeah. And there were moments that after so many years, when the physical stopped, I had actually wished he was more physical than he was verbal because it was the verbal that was just, that was so crushing. Yeah. Relentless as well. Yeah. I mean, he, I, I would feel um, towards the end. I, I, I could show 20 years of pictures and I was trying to figure out who I was with all those pictures, yeah. sorry. And um, I, I almost looked as if I, you could see, I was really trying to figure out who I was, yeah. no, who, it's, I, who he wanted me to be. That's, and that's the point, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. the, and I, you know, I deal with many people that come to me with trauma and abuse and such like, and, and it's that sense of losing yourself because you've either been gaslighted or, you know, controlled by a narcissist or not, or whatever it might be, but this is a planned strategy that's taken place over many years by people who are skilled at this and they've yeah. honed their skills every single day on their wives or partners or, or children or such like. So um, 
you know, it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a it's a cold thing that happens to people, and this idea of losing yourself is very very common, and you know, certainly as a therapist, we we deal with people like this all the time, and and helping people deal with the trauma, the neurobiology and the psychology of trauma is actually part of this. Now, you've written Caged as a book to um, to summarise your experience, but did you have people in mind when you wrote it? I, you, yes. I When I wrote the book, and it wasn't in any way, it had, had nothing to do, it was in a tell-all. Uh, believe me, it wasn't a tell-all. Um, but it it was an idea to, to come out there... In some respects, I afterwards I started. I, there was it was very lonely, and I would go to find books and everything. There were self help books, and there was, you know, I'm healed um, and I'm wonderful, and I've mm. hit the other side. And I'm thinking, well, I Ooh. haven't. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm and and because there is this idea that the that you know there is a a re-victimization that sometimes happens to many of us um, in the post-separation process, whether your abuser is alive or has passed. And there are many of us out there that are widows um, in the abuse cycle too and struggle and um, and struggle with multiple feelings as, as widows in the abuse cycle. Um, so the idea in this is, you know, saying it, it's okay, we struggle and we struggle with a lot of feelings and it's okay if you come out and you're like, I don't know, I feel good some days, some days I don't, um, and that's okay too. Um, and getting help and finding a path that's right for somebody, yes. but finding your path, um, I think has been very therapeutic for me. Okay. So is it written for people who've experienced abuse or are you actually helping people understand understand that person who has been abused both in some respects um for those that have gone through abuse maybe recognizing um, and i think there are people out there who might not recognize like myself you know you think you get into those um those vortex moments where you think this is a normal life it's not a normal life um this is not normal um there are things because there was a pivotal moment for me where i realized i can have better I can be better and I can do better. Um, so for those out there that might think I don't, des- I, I didn't deserve this. Um, and then for others out there, you know, who need to learn to listen and might recognize and be able to be compassionate for those in those relationships. There were a lot of people who didn't understand our, our situation, who began to but needed, but really should have been there sooner or at that moment. And this is, I think, a good way for them to really um, understand for other people. And I have seen them be better for those and and really get clarity to those moments. It sounds absolutely fascinating. So, uh, Laura, how do I get my hands on a copy of this book, Caged? The, you know, I'm seeing, given the, the, the time and nature, um, online is great. Um, Amazon, Indie, Barnes and Nobles, uh, and most of them ship for free. Uh, and if I am, you can go through the website, which also gives a lot of information, um, laurasavanosh.com, and I do send signed copies. Um, 
and it gives you, I have social media pages where I try to update and give information as well. So those are all great. And you can link them, uh, those book um, sites through my webpage as well. Okay. And so that website is Lara, L-A-R-A, Sabanosh. Uh, com. So it's worth having a look on there because it's quite interesting um, resources as well. And, and something that just hit me, the um, so an American National Domestic Violence Hotline that says your relationship, state, your relationship status does not make consent automatic. I think that's really fascinating, actually. So, yes. Um, so yes, I mean, it's, it's a massive subject. We've done nothing more than scratch the surface today. But um, thank you for opening our eyes to this. It's a very important subject. And and I can see how the complexity of the military or the armed forces or public sectors world really does make things more complicated. It's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. Well, I wish you well with the book and um, hopefully people can engage and um, catch you on the social media and on your website. So thank you for spending time with us today. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.